if you're a member of Christ Community Church, you know this, that when Jason leads an offering and he sings, he's going to invite you to sing at some point, right? And I was just sitting there thinking, why does he do this? Um, and I think it's because he's getting so much joy that it's it's not complete until it's shared. You ever you know you know you see something beautiful, it is beautiful, but it gets bigger or better when you share that beauty with somebody. You're staring at something together, you're experiencing together. So Jason does a great job. Jason, we're on to you. That if you do an instrumental, you're not going to ask us to sing. But if you do some kind of singing, you're going to say, now if you know it. I wish I had a, an Irish accent. Uh, jump in with me. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had the uh, wonderful opportunity to try to help my daughter install a light in her bathroom over her mirror. Now, that's, uh, that's a whole sermon right there <laughs> that I'm not going to run down that track. But what, one of the things that you have to do is you have to make sure current is coming out of the, the wall or out of the wires that you're connecting your light fixture to. And you can lick your fingers and grab the probes if you'd prefer. But instead of doing that, you have to check with what's called a current detector. And I didn't have a current detector, so we didn't know. And I thought, well, let's go. We couldn't get any power. So I went to the store to buy a current detector. And the current detector is a little light, basically, a light bulb connected to two probes. And you take those probes and you either touch them to the wires in this case, or you could put them in an outlet. And if the light comes on, then current's flowing through it. And if light's not coming on, then you don't have any current. And as I thought about that, I thought, what if you could have a current detector for a culture? You could stick in these probes into a city or into a culture, and it would tell you what powers that culture, what drives that culture, what gives that culture energy. And I think if you could have a current detector for a culture and you stuck these probes into the city of Corinth, what would show up on your little meter, it, what powers the city of Corinth, what, what uh, is the current that flows through the culture of Corinth is power, wisdom, and celebrity. You stick the probes in, and what you get is we like to be the person in power. We like to be the, the person at the top. We're a competitive culture, and first really matters. And when you come in first, you let other people know you came in first. And wisdom, being the smartest person in the room, being the person who's got the biggest degree, who's got the most letters after their names, that matters. And, and and celebrity matters. Being known by a bunch of other people matters. And the bigger your status, the bigger your friend group, somehow that boosts your own self-image. That's that's the current that's running through Corinth. And one of the problems with that current is it obviously creates division. Because some people in Corinth just aren't as good as some other people. And you know who it is because they tell you, we're number one. This group or this person, they're the power person. They're the celebrity. They're the one that's tied into the culture. 
And a lot of times what would happen in the city of Corinth, and you can imagine this, people would attach themselves to the celebrity as a way to boost their own self-image. You get this, do you not? You know a celebrity, and you're at a dinner party and say, well, you know, I met them. Why do you do that? A little part of it, maybe a real big part of it, is you're trying to boost yourself. You're trying to say, hey, I'm important because I'm attached to this person. I've actually met this celebrity. I've met the power person. And so we understand that it's happening and what that causes in every culture, but particularly here in Corinth, is it creates divisions because you have this group and you have this group and you have this group and they're all trying to, to vie for who's, who's a little bit taller, who's a little bit bigger, who's number one, who's got the power. And that creates a, a division. And unfortunately for the city of Corinth, this was flowing, free-flowing through the culture. And then when Paul comes in and starts a church, guess what flows freely into the church? The same thing. Now, this happens to every church in every culture. You have to be very careful that the, the, the current in the culture isn't flowing right through the front doors of the church. And this current of power and wisdom and celebrity and division, it's flowing right into the church at Corinth. And you can read about it, First Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. See, there's disagreement. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and with the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. See, there's this division. Who's on top? Who's better? Some are saying, I follow Paul. I'm in the Paul celebrity group. I've attached myself to him. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas or Peter or I follow Christ. So inside this church, the, the cultural current has freely flowed in, and people are, are dividing up. Now, this, this flow from culture to church is something every church has to guard against. And let me just give you one example from our culture. We are immersed in an entertainment culture. Whether you go to Thaline Hall, you go to movies, you go to sports, you go to concerts, or you just go to YouTube, you go to be entertained. You want to take your mind off something, you want to, you want to laugh, whatever that is, it's not, I'm not saying it's bad, but what happens is we go and we observe, it's typically what happens, I, I go and observe, then I analyze, and then I judge. I go, I sit in the theater, and I'm, I'm observing, I'm analyzing what's happening. Do I like the music? Do I like the storyline? Do I like the character development? And then when I leave, I get in my car with my wife and say, well, that wasn't worth 10 bucks. Or that was. Or, or let's see that again. Whatever it is, I say, I like that person. I didn't like that character. Whatever that is, that's a, that's the total, that's a totally normal way and I'm not even suggesting that's a bad thing to do. What I'm suggesting, if that's what everybody does in the culture, what happens if that flows into the church? Do you see now how that could be a problem? I come to church to observe. And I analyze. 
hmm, okay, I'm looking at this. I like, I, I like when Jason leads or whatever it is. I analyze. And then I get in my car with my wife. Of course, I don't say anything in the lobby. I just wait till I get in my car. And then I judge. I like that sermon that really hit me where I was. Not all of it's bad, but do you see what happens? When, when that flows into the church, there are a lot of things that are negative about that. But, but one of the biggest problems is that we've, we've turned upside down what's actually happening in a church. What's actually happening in a church is someone is here to observe. Someone is here to analyze. Someone is here to judge. And you know who that someone is? God. And you know who he's observing, analyzing, and judging? Yeah, you. Me. But because of our culture, we don't think of it that way. We think of it as I'm observing Paul or Jason, I'm analyzing and I'm judging, not I'm coming to a worship service where there is an audience who is observing, analyzing, and judging, and they're judging me. And so in an entertainment culture, the church becomes what fits and what's best for me. Does that make sense? It's very easy to do. There are a hundred other examples we can give. But every church has to fight against that. And Paul has to fight against that in, in, in Corinth. This celebrity culture flows into the church. And members had then began to band together around their favorite celebrity pastor, which led to a number of terrible consequences. And we'll get to them as we move through the book. Let me mention just one. Each group in the church thought... They were just a little bit better than every other group. I mean, Peter's great and all, but Paul's just a little bit better. Paul's great and all, but Apollos, just a little bit better. And they're connecting themselves to this celebrity pastor in a way of boosting themselves. And this is what I want you to hear really clearly. What they hungered for, what was in their heart as they came to church, was that they wanted to stand out. That was in the hunger of their heart. They wanted to be just a little bit taller. Not too much, but but just enough that everyone would notice. Imagine coming to church and you just want to make sure everyone notices you. Not too much, but just enough. You're using church, you're using your activity at church to boost yourself up a little bit. And of course, when you boost yourself up a little bit, what gets obscured? The power of the gospel. Now, this is a little bit of a tangent, so this is like bonus material. All right. But I was just thinking about this yesterday. I had some time just to sit and think about this. They came to church, and what, what Paul's exposing is what they hungered for in their heart. 
What they hungered for in their heart is the same thing they hungered for out in the world. I want people to notice me so I get a resume. I get letters behind my name. I'm in the power position. I'm a celebrity. Whatever that is. And they brought it into the church. And that's, that's still in their DNA. I'm not saying they're, they're not Christians. But the culture, the current still flowing through their own hearts. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the very first question, actually the very first words that Jesus asked in the Gospel of John. I'm studying the Gospel of John with a group of guys right now. And the very first words, chapter 1, of Jesus is a question. Two guys who are going to become disciples start following after Jesus. And you get the idea he's sort of walking down a road and they're like, you know, 40 feet behind, 30 feet behind, 20 feet behind. And then finally when they get there, he turns around and he says, anybody know? What do you want? Now, Jesus does this all the time. He has these double-layered questions. It, it means one thing, but he's also trying to peel back to say another thing. Of course, like, guys, what do you want? And they say, well, where are you staying? I don't know if they don't know what to say, but that's what they came up with. But my guess is Jesus actually had a deeper question. What is your heart hungering for? Do you know what's in your heart? Are you aware what's in your heart? Do you understand the loves of your heart? And Paul is trying to help these people in Corinth to understand. Do you understand the loves of your heart? The loves of your heart expose what you really are trusting in. And what they're really entrust, trusting in themselves in is just to be boosted up a little bit more. And that makes me worthwhile in some way. And then the very last chapter of John. Jesus, almost Jesus' last statement is also a question. So it's very strategically located. J Peter turns to his would-be disciples or soon-to-be disciples and says, What do you want? What is your heart hungry for? Are you even aware of it? And then his very last question, you know this, he asked it three times. What does he ask his, his disciple, Peter? Do you love me? You see, it's a heart question. Peter, you say that you're going to follow me. But we found out what's in your heart. What's in your heart, Peter, is Peter. And that got discovered. And I'm trying to look at you and say, do you even know your own heart? Do you know the hungers of your own heart? Do you know what's driving you forward? Because if you don't know that, then you're not really going to be able to see yourself clearly and Certainly you wouldn't be able to see Christ. So Christ just very kindly, he's coming up, he's coming up beside you and me this morning and saying, what do you, what do you want? Why are you here this morning? Well, I'm a member of the church and Sunday morning is, what's in your heart? If we could just sit and have coffee for an hour. I just say, what, what is, what is your heart hunger for? And how can you point back to say it's, it's that because I keep doing these things? Do you even know that? Do you even ask yourself that kind of question? Paul heard, okay, that's bonus material. We're back to the sermon. 
Paul heard what was happening in Corinth, he, he knows, he's seen their heart. It's gotten exposed because they're, all, they're in all these divisions that really they're just trying to attach themselves to a celebrity and boost themselves. I would need to be a little bit taller than everybody else so people know Paul Phillips came to church today. He knows that's happening in Corinth. And, and to, in order to adjust their thinking, he pulls out two pictures from a recent photo album. These are very familiar photos, and you see them. Chapter 1, 26 through 31, Paul pulls out this picture and says, Corinthians, do you remember what you looked like when you were called? It's kind of like the, the middle school picture. Sorry if you're in middle school. But if you're older, you'll get this when you look back at your middle school picture. It's not pretty. It's just nobody goes and says, oh, I wish I looked like what I looked like in middle school. And he's just pulling out the photo album and saying, guys, I'm trying to make some kind of adjustment. So in order to make that adjustment, I'm going to pull out this old photo and say, remember what you look like? Not impressive. In the second photo, chapter 2, 1 through 5, he pulls out the second picture and says, Corinthians, do you remember what I sounded like when I came to you? Equally not impressive. So nobody's impressive in this equation. The pastor, the preacher is not impressive, and the people in the congregation, none of them are impressive. Nobody's impressive. And why is he going to say that? He's going to try to drive them to say, there is one person to be impressed by. And it's not the preacher, and it's not the congregation. So that's, that's, he's pulling out these pictures, and I want to examine these two just in a little detail, and I want to do them in reverse order. So chapter 2, 1 through 5, Paul pulls out this unimpressive picture of himself. So he says, chapter 2, verse 1, when I came to you, let's just remember, let's just notice the things in the picture. I didn't come with lofty speech. You you wouldn't say I was eloquent. I I didn't come with any kind of worldly wisdom. In other words, the way the world thinks, you noticed right away that wasn't the way I was talking. And I didn't come with plausible words of wisdom. This is a a long explanation of just, I wasn't clever. You wouldn't say, wow, he was so clever the way he put his words together or the way he got his illustrations together. There was nothing impressive about Paul. And I love this particular verse, especially as a pastor. Paul knew that they thought he was unimpressive. Let me say that again. Paul knew that his congregation thought that he was unimpressive. Because he says this in 2 Corinthians 10.10. I know that some of you say about me. A little bird came by and started chirping to the preacher Paul. And says, you know, I don't know if you know, Paul, but some people are saying this. Well, Paul's letters are weighty and forceful. He's a good writer, but man, when you meet him in person, he's unimpressive. He's a terrible speaker. So Paul knows this is their evaluation of himself. This is, this is the kind of feedback that preachers call car commentary. 
So, of course, I greet you at the door. Oh, wonderful sermon, Pastor. That's so wonderful. I'm going to take that with me, blah, blah, blah. You get in the car, right? You get in the car, shut the door. Now you get the real commentary, right? That's when it really comes out. And some of the people had gotten in their first century chariots, I guess. And they said, you know, he's a good writer, but wow, he is unimpressive. He is not a good speaker. So the first picture, Corinthians, do you remember how unimpressive I was? And what would they have said? Uh, Yeah, we do. One commentary on this section says, Paul purposefully renounces all the seductions of spin or audience-pleasing devices. It's not that he couldn't have sounded more winsome or, or more intelligent, but he understands that's the current that's flowing through the culture. So if he taps into that, it might not be healthy for them. And so why does he do this? Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I wanted to make sure that when you walked away, you were totally impressed by Jesus and totally unimpressed by Paul. Because Paul understands, verse 5, that if you're impressed by the speaker, that your faith might not rest in God, it might rest in men. I love uh, Charles Spurgeon's testimony. Now, you might have heard his name many times and not know who he is, but he's an old Baptist preacher. He's now a dead Baptist preacher. He's not just old. But he lived in the 1800s, and he lived in England. And he was known as the Prince of Preachers. He was an impressive speaker. He was a, an impressive writer. Lots of people read his sermons now. It's really, he's got a wonderful treasure of things that he said. And he had the kind of mind that every preacher wishes they had. He, he just started thinking of sermons just right before he was giving them. And nobody, you know, very few people can emulate that. And all, it seemed like everything he said was so great, which is why he has this title, The Prince of Preachers. And every good preacher likes to quote Charles Spurgeon. That, that's the way they boost themselves up a little bit. So I'm boosting myself up by reminding his, you of his testimony. This is what he says. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning. While I was on my, uh, a certain place to worship, I had to turn down a side street because of the snow, and I entered a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister didn't come that morning. I guess he was snowed in. At last, love this description, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, maybe a tailor, or something of that sort, he went up to preach. Now, just try to imagine. Snowstorm in Wilmington, you come, only 15 people come, I don't come, no staff person comes, and just somebody has to stand up and say something. <laughs> he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason he had little else to say. 
Uh, the text was Isaiah 50, uh, 45, 22. Look unto me and be saved, all, all ye ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words right. But it didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. Hear that? Not in the man, but in the Messiah. When he had managed to spin about it for ten minutes or so, he fixed his eyes on me. As if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. (laughs) Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow which struck right at home. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, only as a primitive Methodist could do, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look and live. And I saw at once the way of salvation. Then and there, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and I saw the sun. I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, Oh, the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks to him alone. What a divine irony. The prince of preachers saved by a poor pauper of a preacher. Why? The power is not in the man. The power is in the Messiah. That's how people get in. They get in because of Jesus. Now, yes, there is something about the person proclaiming that God uses, but what saves somebody is not a man. All of, all of our weight rests on Jesus. It doesn't rest on Paul. It doesn't rest on Apollos. It doesn't rest on Peter. So in these opening verses of Corinthians, Paul's trying to dismantle this hero worship of preachers. And he's reminding them that they've been, they've been saved under a very impressive, unimpressive preacher, and that's Paul. So that's the first photo. He's trying to make an adjustment. He's saying, look, I wasn't impressive. You guys know it. So there's nothing to boast about when you think about me or even any other man. Second photo, chapter 126 through 31. Now, now that we've taken a look at the unimpressive preacher, let's look at the unimpressive congregation. Let's turn the mirror around and see what they look like. And he starts, uh, I want to start with this phrase. phrase. Look with me in verse 30. He uses this phrase, your life in Christ. He is the source of your life in Christ. This, this congregation struggled with some sense of superiority, which led to, to boasting and boosting their own self-image. They come hoping that other people think that they're impressive, So to counter the problem, Paul takes them back to this picture. Let's let's look at yourselves. How did you get in? How do you get into Christ? How do you become a Christian? How does someone get in? Somebody asks you, well, you're a Christian. How do you get in? Paul does something very strategic. He doesn't go to the church and say, hey, stop boasting. Instead, he takes them back to the gospel, and he asks them, do you remember how you got in? Let's look at the picture, verse 26. Were you wise 
I mean, Corinthians, did you have an advanced degree where you just a little smarter than most, so smart people get in? Is that how you got in? Uh, no. Uh, were you powerful? I mean, you had such great self-discipline. You had such great willpower that, that you got yourself into the kingdom. Is that how you got in? But no. Well, maybe you were of noble birth. Maybe you were part of the Blue Bloods. You were uh, not the television show, but the phrase... You, you're part of the upper class society, and upper class people always get in. So you got in just because of who you were born into. You had a good family. That's how you got in. Is that how you got in? No, no, you didn't get in that way. Okay, you didn't get in because of any of your own merits. Now let's look at verse 27. Let's just remember how God saw you. Let's just look at the words. You can circle them. Here's how God saw the people when he came to court, when, when God comes and looks down on this church at Corinth. Let's see, they were foolish, weak, low and despised. And then this phrase I love, are not. In other words, nothing. You are part of the nothing group. Now, I'm just trying to imagine, you're getting this letter for the first time. Imagine you're in Corinth and you come to church and you're in this culture. This current has gotten into your heart. And you're just trying to be a little bit taller than everybody else. And somebody says, the Apostle Paul has written a letter. We've gotten it. And he's gonna, he's gonna, the preacher's going to read it to you today. And then when he says, hey, let's remember what you looked like. I just would have loved to have seen their reaction to this, these verses. Uh, let's put this all together for you, Corinthians. You weren't wise, you weren't powerful, you weren't of a noble class. You, instead, you were foolish, weak, low and despised, and you came from the nothing class of people. Do I have that right? So why are you boasting? I mean, let's look at the picture. Is there anything here that's really worth boasting about? Help me out. You could just hear silence coming across the congregation. So if you don't get in because you're wise enough or powerful enough or noble birth and you are foolish, weak, low, despised, and nothing, how do you get into Christianity? That's my question. Well, you can't possibly miss the answer because it's right here in the text and it's said three times. So it's Paul's way of saying, in case you miss it once, you're going to get it one of these three times. Answer, God chooses. You see that three times. God chooses. People who get into the kingdom of God are in because God chooses. He, he makes this so clear. And the reason he wants to make it so clear right here is because if there was even a little kernel of human addition to this your salvation equation, you and I would take that little kernel and expand it out. And say, look how wonderful this little kernel of my contribution is. You would just say, I have this little kernel of human wisdom or power or pedigree as part of my salvation. And a little bit of the glory of God would come to you. You would sneak your face in on your salvation. And Paul's saying, if you had a, a Facebook page... Of all the photographs that you added that you were a part of your salvation, you know how many photos you'd be in? 
None. You're not in any of those photos. The only contribution you make to your salvation is your sin. God is choosing because he doesn't want the people to siphon off God's glory in order to boost themselves. He doesn't want them to walk around and say, I'm just a little bit smarter. I'm just a little bit more disciplined. My family's just a little bit better. So that's why I got in. All those thoughts would lead to a sense of superiority. It would lead to you or I starting to look down. And so he's just dismantling any angle for human boasting. And the Corinthian culture of self-actualization doesn't fit inside the gospel. So let me close with one story and one brief point of application as we come towards the communion table. There's a second stage to Charles Spurgeon's salvation. You do realize this is a process. It's not doesn't happen all at once. And here's the second stage to Spurgeon's testimony. Here's what he says. When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And I sought the Lord earnestly, I, but I had no idea that the Lord was seeking me. I, did not think, I, I do not think young converts are first aware of this. And maybe you're not. You're here, you're genuinely a Christian, you're searching after God, but you're not really aware that he first is seeking after you. Spurgeon continues, I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths in my own soul. I I can recollect how I felt that I had grown suddenly from a baby into a man. One weeknight when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon. This is so encouraging. That a preacher is listening to a preacher and not thinking much about the preacher's sermon. Then then a thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? He's just sitting there thinking, not paying attention to the preacher, but thinking, "How how did I get in? I think I'm in. How did I get in? I sought the Lord, I thought. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should have not sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all. And he was the author of my faith. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to to God. All of his, all of the weight rests on God. None of it on Charles Spurgeon or any other man. And this is exactly what Paul's trying to do with the church at Corinth, saying, you guys have shifted weight. You've shifted some of the weight that belongs to God to yourselves or to a a celebrity preacher. No man can hold that weight. And so he's coming back in to try to say, no, ascribe your salvation wholly to God. So that when you come together, nobody's trying to boost themselves. Nobody looks a little taller. Everyone, when they come to the cross, is... On equal footing. 
So, so that the only person that stands out is Jesus. One quick application, especially as we come for communion. Now inside every church, but I pray for this church, there is no social, ethnic, gender, age, or economic division. Those are all classifications outside of the church that you just try to measure yourself by. But when, in, when you come inside the church, everybody's on the same ground. Because nobody gets in because of any of those factors. Whether you're black or white or Hispanic or Asian, whether you're old or young like me, You're male or female, you're rich or poor, you're educated or uneducated. Everyone gets in because of Christ. So when you come forward and you think, look at all these kinds of people that are coming forward. Some old, some young, some have education, some don't. Some probably have more money than others. Some are black or white or Hispanic. None of that matters. Just be amazed that you're part of it. You're not a little taller than anybody. You should just be, God, you chose me to be a part of this at a, at a great cost to yourself. Just as Jesus was going to the cross, he stopped at a meal to make sure that they understood that when he took this bread at the Passover, it actually represented his body. And then when he took this cup and he poured it out and said, this is going to be a new covenant. This is a new agreement that I'm going to, I'm going to pay down all the debt so that you can be a child of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we come and we take this simple meal together. All kinds of ages, all kinds of sizes, all kinds of colors, all kinds of education and economic and social realities, but we all come the same level here to feast with you. And so I pray that the people of God come forth. I pray that those who don't have a relationship with you would sit and think, what am I hungry for? What do I want Just help them see that and then help them see that whatever that thing is, that's not going to save them. So, so I pray for ministry to every person here now in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>